0: I think it was called like breaking, but not entering. So I grew up in a really small town in Southern Ohio named Bainbridge. Uh, My town was so small that when people ask where I'm from, I actually tell them about another small town, about 35 minutes from my small town, because they may have heard of that one. The only way you've ever heard of my town is if you've been there. It's actually not called a town. When you pull into it, there's a sign outside, kind of the boundary line that says, welcome to the village of Bainbridge. I grew up in a village like an elf. Um, there were 2,000 people in the village that I grew up in. And it is stuck in time. Like if you go to my hometown today, it looks exactly like it looked in probably 1960. Uh, have you ever seen a movie, uh, the movie, A Christmas Story with Ralphie and the Red Ryder BB gun and the triple dog Dare? That's what my town looked like. And that's, that's kind of how my childhood Functioned. I walked to school uh, every day with my two sisters. And as we got closer to school, I lived about four blocks from school. The pack of kids that was walking would grow bigger. Um, and I remember as a kid when you're walking with a pack of other kids to school every day and home from school, you do things that kids do, which which is you get in trouble from time to time. We had a little factory that we walked by every day on the way home from school, and the side of the factory faced the sidewalk that we were on, and there was a door that led into the factory, and the bottom of the door was wood. and and the top of it, the whole top section was a massive pane of glass, and you could look inside and see the guys working. And every day on the way home from school, we would go by that factory and we would bang on that glass, and then we would run around and hide around the corner. And somebody would come out and he would yell things at redneck people in redneck towns, yell at redneck kids that you can't say in church. And we would kind of laugh, and he would go back inside and we go home. We did it every day. You say, Why would you do that every day? Because we were just annoying little kids in this town and we were bored. Well, one day it snowed, kind of. Like today, not a lot of snow, not enough snow to cancel school but enough snow to cause a little problem, enough snow that you had to wear your gloves and your hats to school. And I remember walking home that day and I don't know if it was because of the snow, I don't know if there was some ice, I don't know if it's because we had gloves on, but instead of knocking on the window, we knocked through the window that day. And as we pounded on the glass, it shattered into the factory. And we were like, run. So we all ran to our hiding spot, waiting for the guy to come outside and yell. We heard the door open, but he didn't yell. And we thought, hey, maybe no big deal. And within 10 seconds, he was standing in front of the bush. That we were hiding behind with no concept that snow left footprints. And he literally followed our little boot prints <laughs> right to where we were sitting in the snow. And he said, Y'all need to come inside. Uh, and I remember sitting inside um, his office. He wasn't angry, he was annoyed. It takes a lot to make a redneck angry. You have to jump in the lake that they're fishing in or spill their beer or something. But he was, he was annoyed. And I remember he was holding the phone. If you're under 20, you won't even know what this means. But he was holding the phone, it had a cord attached to a box on top of a desk. <laughs> And it had numbers on it. And I'll never forget him pointing the phone at us. And he said, guys, somebody's going to have to pay for this. Like, I'll never forget that black phone in his hand, him pointing the phone at us saying, guys, somebody's going to have to pay for this. And he called our parents. I, to this day, don't, I don't remember who paid for it. I remember my mom and dad making me go up there. I remember having to say I was sorry. I remember helping clean up the mess. I don't know whether or not my mom and dad made me pay for it. But I'll never forget him shaking that phone at us and saying, Somebody's going to have to pay for this. I say that because when you really understand Christmas, you understand that the Christmas story starts very much with that line. Somebody's going to have to pay for this. Something was broken, and somebody was going to have to pay for it. In a few moments, we're going to take communion together as families and and we're going to leave and go celebrate Christmas Eve and Christmas together with our families. But before we do that, I want to tell you two things about Christmas that I hope will help you better understand Christmas for the rest of your lives. Whether you've been coming to church every Christmas Eve, or whether you come to church often, or whether this is your first time ever in church and you're just hoping to survive, listen, you will. We're more than halfway done. You will survive, I promise you. It's my goal that when you walk out of here, you know a little more about Christmas and what it means so that you can maybe appreciate it a little more in your life. Because here's the reality of Christmas. Christmas is the answer to a problem. I mean, when you look at the Christmas story, Christmas is the answer to a problem. As a matter of fact, when you look at the Christmas story as a standalone story, as just entertainment, if you were watching it on TV... It would jump off the pages at you that something was wrong that needed to be fixed. I'm going to read you a little portion of the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. Luke was a man, a historian who lived at the same time as Jesus. He talked to a lot of Jesus' friends. We think he spent time with Jesus' mom talking to people about this night. And he told us about the night that Jesus was born. And if we just read this story and know nothing that came before it and nothing that comes after it, we read a story where we see that something is wrong that needs to be fixed. Listen to how Luke writes it. He starts in verse 4 of Luke chapter 2, and he says, So Joseph, that's the man who would raise Jesus as his father, also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. David was a great king in Israel. A thousand years before this, to be related to him would have been a very, very big deal, and Joseph was. He went there to be registered with Mary. That was Jesus' mom. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He's the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rest. It's a Christian good story. I've heard it before. Why do you say that that story presents a problem? Because of verse 11. Verse 11 shows us something's wrong because of what is offered as something right. Say, what do you mean? Look at verse 11 one more time. It should be on the screen. The angel said to the shepherds, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. You know, if you're just reading this in a book that you haven't read, the previous book before you got to this one, and you read that a savior had been sent from heaven to earth, you would ask the question, well, what do people need saved from? I mean, who's in so much trouble That God has to send someone from heaven to save them. I mean, if a savior has appeared, it's because there's a whole bunch of people that are in some sort of trouble. So what's the story that Christmas is the answer to this big problem? Or maybe I should say it this way, what is the problem? To answer that question, we have to go back to the beginning. You say the beginning of the Christmas story? No, the beginning of God's history with humanity. You see, when you study what God has told us about human history, we find out that in the beginning, humanity was created to be with God forever unless they chose not to be. Christmas doesn't begin with Joseph and Mary. Christmas begins with Adam and Eve. We find out that God created the heavens. He created the earth. He spoke the universe into existence. At some point... God created his greatest creation, humanity, and he placed in human beings the imago Dei. It's a Latin phrase that means the image of God. The only thing in creation that God placed a part of himself in was humanity so they could love like him, so they could love others like him, so they could have a mind, an intellect, and a will. God wanted humans to be like him, and God created these two people, Adam and Eve, to be with him forever unless they chose not to be. God told him, basically, you've been created to be like me. You've been created to be with me. Um, You've been created to be with me forever. However, if you choose not to be, I'm going to give you that choice. I'm going to give you free will. If you follow me and stay connected to me, you're going to live forever because when you're connected to me, I am life. And when you're connected to me, you never die. But if you choose to separate yourself, you can do that. But here's what's going to happen. If you choose to go your own way and to separate yourself from me, you can do that. But when you do that, you're going to be separated from me, which means you're going to be separated from life. Eventually, you'll die. And by the way, the little bit of me that I placed in you, the Imago day that you're supposed to pass on to all generations, you're going to replace that with a little seed called sin, and you're going to give that to all generations. But I'm going to let you choose. And maybe you've heard the story about Adam and Eve and the serpent. One day, I don't know if it was day one, day 10, day 100. We don't really know. But we know Adam and Eve one day decided maybe they wanted to do things their own way instead of God's way. They separated. They got out on their own. They did things their own way. Life was immediately cut off from their spirit. They felt uncomfortable around God and uncomfortable around each other. And more than that, a seed had been produced to them that would be passed to everyone else. You see, in the beginning, humanity was created to be with God forever unless they chose not to be. And Adam and Eve chose not to be which means the seed they would pass on to everyone else means this since the beginning humanity's born separated from God forever unless we choose not to be there's there's the good part of that equation you see the problem the problem is this ever since Adam and Eve every person who's been born on planet earth has been born separated from God we have the seed of sin in us instead of the seed of God but we get a chance to choose to switch that if we want to you say how because jesus is the answer to that problem as god was talking to adam and eve and the tempter you might have heard him called the devil you might have heard him call satan he was the one who convinced them you don't need god you can do it on your own and then when they did it he kind of said "Ha ha! look what happened to you you're cut off from god now god called the three of them together because adam and eve went back to god and said we change our mind We change our mind. We don't want to live separated from you anymore. We want to live connected. Is that okay? Could we live connected? Could we not have the death and judgment you talked about? Could we just kind of make all this go away? And God said, we can. However, I don't think he shook his phone. He said, we can, but somebody's got to pay for this. Somebody has to pay for what you've done. And as God gathers Adam and Eve and the tempter, Satan, together, he prophesies over this tempter. It was in the form of a serpent. And he says this about the future of the one who separated people from him. In Genesis 3.15, God told Satan, I'm going to put enmity. That means hatred, tension between you and this woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And her offspring is going to crush your head. There's going to be an offspring, a woman, who's going to fix this problem of separation and he's going to allow people to choose to be connected again if they want. Now, what do we call the offspring of woman. For those of you in here who have offspring, did you have an offspring shower a few weeks before you had a child? Did you, did you have an offspring announcement on Instagram that you sent out? No, we we call those babies, right? Like God was saying a baby is going to be born who will end this separation. God told Adam and Eve just outside the garden of Eden, just after they had been separated, we can fix this through a baby. Throughout the rest of Jewish history, as we study scripture, we see that this baby and his role in the world would be known as what we call the Messiah in the Hebrew, Mashiach, The English word is savior, that a baby would be born who would be a savior of his people and a savior of the world by allowing them to connect to God again. And 2000 years ago on Bethlehem, an angel in the sky told a group of shepherds, this is him, who the baby, which baby, the savior, baby the Savior, baby from Genesis chapter three, the one who's gonna cause everyone who's separated to be able to be connected again. This is him, you should go see him. The shepherds would have had no clue he was there or why he was there if someone had not told them, but God sent someone to tell them. And the same thing is true of most of us. Most people in this room do not know that they're born separated from God unless somebody tells them. And even if they are aware of that fact, they feel disconnected, they don't feel hope, they feel like there's more in their life they don't know how to ask for it they're like little robert woods you say who is robert woods in 2011 robert was an eight-year-old little boy who lived just outside of washington dc i want you to picture him eight years old he was four foot six he weighed 70 pounds he had dirty blonde hair sparkling blue eyes can you picture this little guy running around now add to your picture this he was a non-verbal autistic child and he was at a picnic with his mom and dad in a state park just outside of washington dc When his parents looked away for a minute and he jetted into the woods to play his favorite game, hide-and-go-seek. And that is where this tragedy begins to unfold. Because what we've learned about Robert since that time is the form of autism that he had would never allow him to recognize he was lost. He would never have the ability to comprehend, I think I'm lost. He wasn't afraid of the dark. He didn't comprehend that like normal kids. He wasn't afraid of animals. He wasn't afraid of danger. He wouldn't have known if it was day or night or cycles. His sleep cycle was really messed up. He he would have no ability to know that he was lost. And beyond that, he had no ability to ask for help because he couldn't speak. So here's this little eight-year-old boy in the woods without the ability to know that he would ever be lost and without the ability to ask for help if he realized that he was lost, he was in trouble. His 12 hours turned into 24 it's 24 turned to 72, is 74 past night, uh, 72 hours past night, number four, the authorities told his parents, you need to kind of brace yourself. These things normally don't end well. It's late October. Your son, your eight-year-old son, has been on his own in the wilderness for four days. You just need to brace yourself. We'll keep looking. But these things normally don't end well. On day five, they sent out another search party. Among that search party was a farmer with his dog, who when the search party went left, he decided to go right. He went through a fence that said, no trespassing, do not enter, because it surrounded a quarry. If you've watched Stranger Things, you can picture this quarry kind of in your head. I saw a picture of it this week, and it looked real similar to that show that's out on Netflix right now. And just down the bank on this quarry, you can picture this rock quarry in your head that's hollowed out. He sees a little eight-year-old boy laying there. He's not sure if he's sleeping or if he's dead. And he walks down, and he kind of, touches him to see if he's alive, and he moves a little bit, and he found out he was cold. He was very hungry. He was really malnourished. He had been eaten by bugs and chiggers. He had scrapes and bruises all over him, but he was okay, and he was rescued. But the reality is he wouldn't have even known when he laid down to go to sleep that he needed to be rescued if somebody wasn't looking for him. That's the story of Christmas. We're a people who don't even know that we need to be rescued. And if we did know, we wouldn't even know how to ask if it wasn't for Jesus who God sent to solve the problem that Adam and Eve created when they separated from him. Or maybe maybe you're different than Robert. Maybe you're Bethlehem. You say, what do you mean maybe I'm Bethlehem, Christian? I was in Bethlehem this July. Bethlehem is it's not a totally safe area to go to I was there with a group from our church. If you go to Bethlehem, you have to take your passport because you go through a checkpoint. If you go to Bethlehem, you should probably have an armed guard on your bus, which we did at the time. Uh, Bethlehem used to be a real hotbed of terrorism into and out of Israel. So Israel thought, we've had enough of of this. And they just built a wall around it. A 30-foot high, several feet thick concrete wall with one entry and one exit. You can hardly get into or out of Bethlehem. We wanted to go and see where Jesus was born. We wanted to go to the shepherd's caves and see where the angels would have come and told them. So we went in, but we had to go in through this huge wall and we had to come out through this huge wall. And as I looked at that wall, I thought about just people in my life that I knew. And I thought, man, how many people are struggling to get to Jesus because of the wall that's been built up, right? They had a bad experience with a church, they had a bad experience with a spiritual leader at some point, they had a bad experience with a pastor and a wall went up and they have a really difficult time getting to Jesus now. Their marriage sadly fell apart and was more difficult than anything that they could have ever imagined. And a wall went up, and their heart is really kind of kept from getting to Jesus. They went through the most difficult parenting challenge that you can go through, and they wondered, God, why are you doing this to us? And the wall went up, and they had a hard time getting to Jesus. They started a business or started a career that didn't work out, and as they were struggling financially, they said, man, if God were real, I wouldn't be in this position. And the wall went up. They went through a tragedy. They lost a parent. They lost a spouse. They lost a child. They lost a grandparent. They lost a coach. They lost a friend. And the wall got built higher and higher and thicker and thicker. And they struggled to get to Jesus. Bethlehem right now has a wall around it. But at Christmas, man, the walls came down because Jesus came down. And he said, I am the answer to the problem of being separated from God. Christmas is the answer to a problem. But Christmas also, number two, becomes the opportunity to see God. Christmas is God waving his arms and saying, here I am. When Jesus was eight days old, his mother and father, Joseph and Mary, who were Orthodox Jews, took him to the temple at eight. Why? Because if you're a Jewish, on your eighth day uh, of life, if you're a Jewish little boy, you go to the temple. And on the eighth day, you're dedicated at the temple. On the eighth day, you're named. Think about that now, your first seven days of Instagrams, saying, hey, look at the picture of the kid. And, you know, and then like on the eighth day, you finally name him. So on the eighth day, right, you would take your child, you would take him to the temple, you would dedicate him before God you would give him his name in front of your friends and your family. And before the priest there, they would pray over him. And you would say, God, like we want, we want our child to know you and live for you. Jesus' parents did this. They were good Orthodox Jews. And as they went into the temple that day, there was a man there named Simeon who was praying. Simeon was probably a grandfather in his seventies or in his eighties, which would have been very, very old 2000 years ago. And as they walk into the temple, Simeon sees this little baby coming into the temple, and God had revealed to him, I don't know if it was a year before, a decade before, or when he was in his 50s, that he would see the Messiah, the Messiah. He would see the baby who would be the Savior from Genesis 3 before he died. And as Jesus' parents, those two teenagers carried him into the temple. He saw the baby, and God said, that's him. And he burst forth in this poetic prayer that I'm going to read you just the first line of because it has some important truth in it. As he saw Jesus, he says in Luke 2 29, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised me, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon basically said, God, I can die now because I have seen the Savior. God, I can die now because I have seen the one you promised to connect us to you and give us eternal life with you. I can die now because I've seen Jesus. What do you want to see before you die? I don't ask that like in a morbid way. I ask that like in a bucket list way. What do you want to see before you die? The day before Thanksgiving this year in Queensland, Australia, the Australian 911 operator got a call from a home hospice care coordinator. And the call went something like this. 911, how can I help you? She said, I'm a home hospice nurse. A family has brought their mother home to be able to die at home but we are not able to keep her comfortable. She's in so much pain that I think we need to transport her back to the hospital so they can give her the meds that will make her comfortable. She's gonna die very soon, but her family wants her to be comfortable. Can you send an ambulance? And they did, they sent an ambulance. The ambulance went and picked up this lady and on the way back to the hospital, the lady in the back of the ambulance asked the young paramedic in his 20s, his name was Graham Cooper, if he could take a detour. She said, hey, before we go to the hospital, could you take me to the beach so I could see the sunset over the water one more time? She said, I realize I'm going to the hospital, and I realize they're going to give me medication, which makes me comfortable, and I realize I'll never wake up. And I don't want the last thing I see to be the inside of an ambulance or the inside of a hospital room. So could you take me to the beach and let me watch one more sunset? He called his dispatch and said, hey, she wants to go to the beach. Can I do that? And dispatch said, yeah, it's okay, you can take her. So they detoured off to the beach and he took her out of the back of the ambulance. And as they sat watching the sunset, the other paramedic snapped a picture of Graham and this lady looking out over the ocean, catching one more sunset before she would go to the hospital to be given the medication that would make her comfortable and hours later she would die. It's a great picture. What do you want to see before you die. It's a morbid question, but it's a good question. You know, in Psalm ninety twelve, Moses, who was a great leader of Israel, journaled some of his thoughts about life. And he said this in Psalm ninety twelve God teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. You know what he's saying there? God help us to remember we're not going to live forever, so today counts. Hey, God, help me to realize I'm not going to live forever, so today with my kids as a parent counts. Help me to realize I'm not going to live forever, so this month I take my spouse out on a date. Help me to remember I'm not going to live forever, so I go on vacation this year. Like, help us number our days so they count well. Hebrews 9.27 says it a little more bluntly. It doesn't say anything dishonest, but it hurts a little bit. It says people are destined to die. I think we get that. But then it says, after that, they're going to face judgment. We think, ooh, that's hard. What kind of judgment? 1 Corinthians 5.10 explains it to us. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. You say, wait a minute, I'm going to have to stand before Jesus one day if the Bible is real. Yes, I believe you'll stand before Jesus one day. You say, what will I be judged on? Do you know your only responsibility is your response You say, what do you mean? You're going to be judged on this. One day you heard you were born separated from God and living in your own direction. And you were given the opportunity instead to connect to God and follow him. And you had a chance to respond. How did you respond? That's what you're going to be judged on. Your only responsibility is your response. And when we ask the question, what do you want to see before you die? I think there's a better question to ask at Christmas. I think it's this question. What does God want you to see before you die? You ever thought about that? What does God want you to see before you die? Because I think I know the answer to that. I think the answer is this, Jesus. You say, why? Because it wouldn't be fair for him to judge your response to Jesus if he'd never shown him to you. But at Christmas, he shows Jesus to the world so they can have the responsibility of responding to the Savior. See, I don't think you're here by accident. I really believe God knew you would be here so tonight you could have the opportunity to see Jesus so you could respond. I believe that the same way that Simeon believed that. Remember his prayer? You probably don't. I'll give you the first two words of it. When he saw Jesus, he prayed these two words, sovereign Lord. You know what sovereign means? It means God's in control. You know what sovereign means? It means that God steps into a world, even when people mess it up, God keeps stepping in to give us a chance to let him be in control again. Sovereign means that God places himself in our path so that we have times to see him and connect to him. Let me tell you what sovereign means. Two years ago, I became the dad of a cross-country runner. My little girl started running cross-country. I've never been the dad of a cross-country runner before. I've been the dad of a football player, baseball player, basketball player. I've been the dad of a soccer player. I've been the dad of a swimmer. I've been the dad of kids who play instruments and sing in the choir. But every audience that I've ever sat in as a dad, you take your seat and the entire game happens in front of you. You see it all. Cross-country is different. I didn't know that until I went to my first meet. I go to my first meet and I see the starting line. And right next to it, I see the finish line. But the course is all someplace else. And I remember thinking, this is gonna be weird. I'm gonna see the start and I'm gonna see the finish. But like I'm gonna miss the game. I'm gonna miss the race. I'm gonna miss the match. I'm gonna miss the competition. It would be like, you know, seeing the opening tip and then leaving and come back for the buzzer beater. It's like you know, I guess that's just the way this sport works. So the gun goes off, bang. Hundreds of runners from Summit Lakes Middle School and other middle schools around our community take off running. And as they take off running, all the moms and dads are at the, you know, the starting line, and they're taking videos, and they're taking pictures. And as the kids go by, the parents take off running like a bunch of wildebeest being chased by lions. Like, if you've ever seen National Geographic, it was just like a, this massive game of tag had broken out. It was, like, it was like everybody's scattered. And I asked one of the dads near me, I was like, where's everyone going? And he said, they're going to the next point on the course where we can see the kids so we can cheer them on. Let's go. It was 95 degrees. I was wearing jeans and dress shoes and a shirt. So I was like, all right. You know, so I'm, I'm off, you know, to the next point on the course. I get to the next point on the course and here come the kids and we're yelling, like, go, go, go. And their kids are going, as soon as the kids pass us again, bang, all the parents scatter. I'm like, where are they going now? And he said, they're going to the next place on the course where we can see them and cheer them on. We did that a couple times before we finally finished. I met my daughter at the finish line. I took her water because I was exhausted. She was young and in shape. I was old and tired. I think I placed hundredth, you know, if I'd have run a little more, I probably would have done better. But what I learned throughout that season was this. In a cross country race, there are places on the course that are so hard, they make you want to quit. There are uphills and there are long inclines that when the kids get to that point, they want to quit. They're so tired, they want to quit. And as a parent, if you can get there before them, and you can be waiting on them. At the place in their race where you know they're struggling the most, if you can get there before them, you can catch their eye and you can say, keep going. I believe in you, you can do it. And you can encourage them to run a little more. And if you can go get to the next place in the race where they wanna quit the most, and you can get there before them. So as they come, they catch your eye and you say, keep going. You can do it, I'm with you. It allows them to keep running. You know what that is? That's a picture of sovereignty. You see, God knew that your race would bring you through this room tonight. God knew that your 2017 race would jog through this area and back out those doors before you celebrated your Christmas. So God beats you here to this spot because some of you, your 2017 lap has been the very hardest lap of your life and you're not sure you can get to 2018. And some of you, like your life lap has been so hard that you're just not sure you can keep going. And God beat you to this spot so he could say to you on Christmas Eve, I got you. Keep going. You can do it. I'm with you. And as soon as you pass me, I'm going to get ahead of you again. In every hard hill you have to climb, I'll be there for you. Connect to me. Let's do it together. I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I will always be there cheering you on and when you can't run, I will pick you up and run for you. That's sovereignty. That's Christmas. say, why would God do that? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. you. say, but I was born separated from him, but it doesn't matter, he loves you. And his greatest joy would be to live connected to you, eternally with you. That's why he started this whole thing. But your responsibility is your response to that. You say, it gives God great joy. What does it give me? It gives you peace. Graham Cooper asked that lady before he put her back in the ambulance, are you ready? And she said, I'm at peace now, I can go. Are you at peace? Are you at peace with where you're at spiritually right now? Are you at peace with God? Are you at peace that all the sins of your past are forgiven? They're not gonna be held against you. Are you at peace? with the fact that one day you're gonna leave this world and be in another one. Are you at peace that you'll be with the God of the universe? Because you can be, and God wants you to be. Remember what the angel said? It was the last line of what they said to the shepherds in Luke 2:14. We've already read it once. They said, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, what's the word, peace. And on earth, peace on those whom his favor rest. Hey, God's favor rests on you today if you want it. The reality is everyone in this room was born separated from God. But the only way you're going to stay that way is if you choose to. Because tonight through the sovereignty of God, he's put himself at your place in your race. And he said, let's connect and run together. Would you bow your heads as you consider that?